This is episode number 128 of Patrick Jones Baseball, and on this episode we have Joey Myers of Hitting Performance Lab. Joey spent 15 years in the corrective fitness industry and realized that he could apply what he was learning there to help baseball players be more successful at the plate. Uh, He's also a best-selling author, coach, and a former college baseball player at Fresno State University. In this episode, we talk about Joey's background in the game, how understanding the human body works, and how that can help you as a coach. And he also recommends some different books that you could buy that will kind of further your learning curve and understand how the body will work to uh, help you as a coach. And um, it's pretty fun stuff. I really enjoyed this interview. And if you're interested in connecting with Joey, make sure to head on over to hittingperformancelab.com. Ladies and gentlemen... Joey Myers. All right, and we are now live with Joey Myers of HittingPerformanceLab.com. Joey, thanks for coming on today. Thanks, Patrick. Thanks for having me, man. So I heard you on, uh, I know we've been talking before, actually, I heard you on the, the Play Ball Kid podcast by uh, by Sammy Eisenberg. Um, I was on that podcast as well, and he does an awesome job. And and so I really just really got intrigued, and I thought you'd be an awesome guest for, for all my listeners just because of how in-depth you are and, and how much you understand about the body. Um, and then I also, you know, looked up, you know, you actually played Division One baseball at Fresno State. Uh, what yeah. was your uh, baseball experience like? So it was like everybody is kind of that roller coaster where you have these kind of peaks and valleys and not so much performance wise, but just what you're, what you're, um, what you've been studying. So when I was in little league, probably like 11, 12 year old, my last two years there, I started to, to get the, the itch to learn and, and learn different things and get better at hitting. I really loved hitting. And I started to take lessons and things like that. And it was a book that I went into this, you know, you'd look at like a, watch a movie like gremlins and they go into this back door little place, you know, bookstore. It was a, a hole in the wall bookstore. And I found Jim, Jim Lefebvre's the making of a hitter. And it was uh, yellow yellowed. The cover was yellowing and there were dog eared bookmarks and stuff inside. And it was a really old, old seemed like a really old book. And I think it had it was 91 is when he put that out or published that, I think. And, um, so I, I started reading that book and that year, that last year I did really, really well, probably in the regular league, which our league was kind of weak. I hit like eight, almost 900, 880 had like Whoa. 14 homers, whatever, which is a weak league. But then we had our all-stars, which, which are our Valley at that time was really, really good. Had a lot of competition. I ended up hitting 770 with 12 homers, 13 Jeez. homers. So it didn't really matter. Yeah. It didn't really matter. Um, and then that next year we were switching from the small field to the big field and I started to struggle. And at the time I thought it was mechanics, which it wasn't thinking back now, it was actually just timing. It was, I have some drills that, that I would have done if I could go back in time and teach myself back then. And I, w- I would have just hit the ground running, but instead I went in and started reading Ted Williams's book, which was a little bit more ahead of its time than the other ones like Mike Schmidt's book and Tony Gwynn and Charlie Lau and all these guys. And it really screwed me up. I, they had all different ways of going about teaching hitting and it screwed me up for about four years. I got really kind of into my head in those four years and I, my game really suffered and all these players that I, my buddies and stuff, I was so much better than they kind of caught up to me and they all said that, Oh, we just caught up to Joey. And that, that just pissed me off, you know? And I was like, no, that that's not it. I know that's not it. 
so that by my junior year and the summer going into my my junior year in high school, I had played varsity my sophomore year, uh, started the whole time. I hit like 250, wasn't anything special, but I was a pretty good outfielder. So they so I was kind of a staple out there the whole season on varsity. Um, but that summer I started and I happened upon this finger pressure idea. And it's not what it is now, but I don't know how I don't know if it was me or a coach that that gave it to me and said, hey, why don't you try this out? But man, that summer, so only a couple week break from the, the regular sophomore season into Legion ball going into my, my junior year, I went off like I hit 400. We played the same high schools. It was Legion balls, the same high schools, just the seniors had left, you know, they couldn't play obviously. And I hit, ended up hitting 400, hit my first couple of homers. It was just really weird. And it was just this finger pressure idea that is now what it is. And, and so from then on, I decided I was just going to go based on feel. And I ended up doing pretty well. My last two years in high school, I hit like uh, 400s, like 398. We played in a pretty big park. I had a couple homers, I think. Um, and then that got me to college, got a scholarship to play in college. But most of the stuff that I teach now, I wasn't doing back then. But I think back to that last year in Little League, and I'm teaching basically what I was doing then. I was just ignorance on fire back then. So that was that was kind of the journey through my – and then I played four years of, of – um, a division one baseball at Fresno state. And then I was done. I pretty much got burnt out and nobody was really looking at me anyway. Um, and so I got into fitness training, which kind of brings me to now into fitness training. I was really interested in corrective fitness, corrective science. So being able to, if somebody came in with a shoulder injury or a knee or ankle or something that I could help them either minimize the pain, or in some cases we could actually get rid of it pain or uh, not so much pain, but more discomfort and whatnot. Uh, so I, went after some certifications. One of the big ones was the functional muscle screen that kind of opened my eyes on, on the human body. And that when you start lifting these restrictions, the brain kind of goes, okay, Joey, well, now you don't have this hip issue anymore. We don't have this hip mobility issue or this ankle mobility issue. So I can let you do what you want because when there's that restriction there, the brain treats that as a threat and it will cut down your performance. It'll, it won't allow you because it's, it's always about survival. It's not about performance with your brain and your body connection. Your brain wants your body to survive. So if you got a restriction, it's going to, it's going to pull back the horses. It's not going to allow all four horses to go. It's going to pull one horse back and it's not going to allow you until you remove that restriction. So from there, my first, my, my son was born. My first kid was born about six years ago. And I, that's when I started to, I stumbled onto first, it was Thomas Myers book anatomy trains. So, and so during this period, are you still, are you coaching any baseball at all? Or is it just straight fitness at this time? Yeah. So it was a combination of both. I started doing the one-on-one lessons in 2015, I think it was, or we came back, my wife and I went and studied abroad in Italy and we came back, uh, cause I was just burnt out of baseball. We wanted to go someplace where there was no baseball or at least I did. She don't care about baseball, uh, you know? And then, so I came back and started doing lessons at a, at a local Academy that was here. So I was doing lessons. It wasn't, it wasn't even near how many I'm doing now, but it was doing lessons. And then I was doing probably more fitness training at the time than I was, I had more fitness clients than I had hitting clients. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of what I was doing there. And then, so when I had the, had Noah, my son, I started reading Thomas Myers and that led to Dr. Serge Greg, or actually that led to another book, Dynamic Body by Dr. Eric Dalton. And in that book was a collaboration of different authors and they were all based around fascia, spinal engine, just kind of the body workers type, type of uh, authors. 
And so that led me to Dr. Serge Grakovetsky. And from there, that kind of, those three books, and I've read other ones outside of that, but those three really kind of made that connection of, wow. And it all started because I wanted to fix an issue in my own body that, that FMS wasn't fixing or any of the other corrective certifications were fixing. And so those three books really opened my eyes. I was like, wow, it's, it's not, not even about just minimizing injury. This can actually be used for performance. And so I basically threw away what I had known before, what I was taught growing up through baseball, threw away, and then I reverse engineered the swing based on these human movement principles. So I want to kind of, I want to go back, I want to get to the fascia and spinal engine and everything, but I want to go back and I knew you were talking about finger pressure before. And once you started like using that, you started to hit better when you were playing. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So what I did back in high school, so whether it was me or my coach, I can't remember who it was, but um, he had suggested, I had suggested to hold the bat more with the top hand and just relax the bottom hand, like not even feel like the bottom hand's on the bat. So basically more of a top hand swing. And that's when things kind of exploded and I had no clue. And, you know, if I'm in a game, I'm in in a bat and I take a swing and miss or something and I would step out, look at my coach who was in the third base coaching box. He would just do this with his bottom hand and you go relax it just to remind me, you know, I'd get back in and I'd I'd do fine. So fast forward to 2015, 16, when I started teaching the finger pressure thing. So in the Thomas Meyer stuff, anatomy trains, he talks about that uh, him and some other guys kind of a kind of just taking and, and taking summarizing all the information from these different guys. But basically what happens is um, Pavel Tetsulin, I think is his name, uh, the kettlebell, Russian kettlebell guy. He was a big RKC, Russian kettlebell challenge guy. Um, he talks about that the there's a direct correlation between grip strength and core strength. And if you look at all the athletes in the world, the, the athletes that seem to have the strongest cores pound for pound are gymnasts. And they're doing a lot of swinging, you know, back forth. They're doing ring stuff or whatever. And uh, Charles Poliquin, he's well-known. I think he's up in Canada, well-known strength conditioning coach, Olympic athletes, professional athletes from all, all walks. And he, he was telling a story about a male gymnast that he had who was, I think, at the time, 18 or 19 years old. He was about five, nothing, nothing special, five, seven, five, eight, maybe 140 pounds. And he decided one day to put him under a bench press to just see how much he could bench one rep max. And the kid had never bench pressed in his life, but he, he spent his whole life doing gymnastics. So uh, Charles Poliquin asked, what do you think his one rep max would be? And then what would you think? 140 pound male who's 19. What do you think his one rep max would be? Never bench pressed in his life. Uh, uh, 140, like 135. <laughs> right? Yeah. 350. What? 350. Wow. Yeah. So again, blows, blows your mind. Right. So that was the thing. It was like, wow, that's interesting. So, so he taught, and so Pavel Tutsalin and, and Thomas Myers with the anatomy, the fascial lines and stuff and how everything's kind of interwoven and interconnected. He talked about, uh, Pavel talked about that when you squeeze your, your hand, when you squeeze hard, that's a direct signal to the, the core to connect. So I tell my hitters, when we talk about finger pressure, usually it's in the first meeting that we have together. And I'll tell them, I'll say, think about the MMA fighters or boxers, but MMA, you can see their fingers because they have the gloves that are cut off, right? You can see what their fingers are doing. So they'll be loose as they're, as they're kind of moving around, they'll be loose. But the minute they go to throw a punch, I guarantee if we put a, a measure, a thing in his hand, like a stick where we can measure his grip strength in pounds per square inch, 
I bet you as he gets ready to throw the punch, you'll see him squeeze really hard in order to throw that punch. He's not being loose, 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 and then he goes to throw the punch loose, loose, loose until he gets and then squeezes at the end, right? It happens before that fist even leaves the shoulder. For just the top hand. For just the top, well, whatever hand's uh, punching, right? But for hitters, yeah, just the top hand. Because we're talking about your center line being your 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 um, sternum. And so going into your sternum, you're a lot stronger than going away from your sternum. So the hitters, the, the challenge for hitters and teaching this are the hitters that are opposites. So they bat left, but throw right, or they bat right and throw left, because that means they're dominant hands on bottom. So we have to basically educate their top hand to squeeze hard they're like for me, it would be my, you know, left hand would be my non-dominant. So I would have to learn if I, if I was hitting lefty, I would have to educate this hand that it's got to squeeze more. And then on the bottom hand, what we use is a butterfly finger pressure. So not when I was taught my junior in high school, the kind of let that hand be loose. It was more of a, you got a butterfly in your hand. You don't want to crush it and you don't want to let it go. So it's, it's not too tight, not too loose, but just right. Like the Goldilocks golden rules is what we use a lot. So uh, for a hitter, it's the same thing, but we're connecting instead of like a MMA fighter, the fist to the core, but we're connecting the bat, which is the hands holding the bat to the turning core. So we'll find hitters that have like a racing back elbow where that elbow races past about 40 to 55% of hitters by just doing finger pressure. It clears it up. Really? It up totally. The other ones, we got to use some other stuff. It could be, you know, they're not, they're not uh, lengthening the front arm out enough or they're not showing their numbers enough. Like there's slack in the system that we have to take out before. Uh, but that finger pressure is so powerful. Yeah, let's, uh, that's, a, that's a good point I want to talk about is slack in the swing because I think that sometimes it can be, that can be kind of confusing for a lot, of, uh, a lot of people out there. And one of the things that I, I, I see, for example, is so many kids like these days, they have a huge negative move back like with their hands and they get caught back there. Mm-hmm. What I explain your theory and like your beliefs when it comes to taking out all the slack in the swing and how far, you know, you should go back. Cause you see, you'll see some hitters, like for example, like a Justin Turner, I mean, he's just right here mm-hmm. and doesn't and just mm-hmm. literally goes right from here to the ball. Right. So the, the slack in the system, you got to think about by back up and go more of, or of the anatomy side. So fascia is, is there are two forces acting in your body at all times. There's compression and tension, right? Compression is if you stack bricks on top of each other, that's a compression force. Tension would be like a wrecking ball where you have the boom crane, you got the cable, you got the wrecking ball at the bottom, and then you got the cable that goes through the structure of the, um, of the uh, boom crane. So in that line, that cable, that's tension. The ball is creating it, and then the, the structure of the boom crane is creating that tension, that kind of pulling apart. So the fascia is cotton candy, spider webby like materials. Is These two forces are kind of interacting with each other uh, on a daily basis, just standing there doing nothing. But we can load and unload that fascia, which is taking tension out or uh, taking slack out versus not. That, um, that Ferrioli guy, the dis- disciple of a hitter, he talks about it in, in terms of uh, like a boxcar you know, train. So the boxcar, the connectors, where you have one that's here and then you got the ball that's here. So when the train's sitting idle, it's the connectors are just kind of slack and they're not doing anything. So when the engine starts up and starts moving forward, you don't see the train immediately start moving forward. It just kind of starts inching. But you hear this kind of bang, 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 bang from the engine down to the end. And that's all these connectors that are boom, that are slamming together or um, that are pulling right on each other, creating those tension forces. So once enough of those get going, the train slowly starts getting moving. 
So the body's a little bit different in the sense that it's more like kind of a spring that pushes together, right? And so when what I teach my hitters is the big three are showing numbers, hiding hands, and down shoulders. So you're kind of talking about the the bookends, so the showing numbers and the hiding the hands. Mm -hmm. So it's not we don't want the hands to go back towards the catcher. We want them to actually go back behind the back heel. So we call it the corner. So if you're standing in a bathroom with the mirror, uh, you got your chest view in the mirror, and you got the corner of the room back here. Your hands, you want your hands to go this way, which is very counterintuitive for most. Like you like you mentioned, it's like they're moving their hands away from impact, and a lot of coaches don't like that because they feel like you're you're too far away. So what happens though, and, and again, you're looking at hitters, you can go and, you know, people out there might be like, no, that's, that's not what it is, but go look at hitters like judge and go look at uh, Mike Trout, go look at even the, the old ones, the Ted Williams is and the Babe Ruth and all those, all those hitters, you're going to see them go to where their hands end up over that back heel, if not behind the back heel. The difference is and it's not, and this was a, I was working with a lot of hitters who he's been, uh, shoot, he's been with me since he was seven. Now he's going to be 16 this year. And a couple of years ago, this is kind of when I fell upon this barrel path. It's, it, it comes down to barrel path, not, not whether they're showing the numbers or not, or even locked out front arm, which we like to, to take a hitter who's too bent. We get them to feel lockout so that even if we get a slight bend, that's okay. Uh, it has to do with barrel path. So this hitter, one day I was throwing to him in the cage and the ball was, we were, we were working on middle in, I think. And he was kind of getting jammed or he was getting caught up. He was just like, man, I just don't feel like I can pull the trigger on that inside pitch. Am I showing my numbers too much? And I said, I don't think so. I think you're good. Um, let me, you know, let me, let me check on some stuff and we'll, we'll work on it next time. Come to find out at that time we were working with the rope bat. Are you familiar with the rope bat? Uh-huh. It's like, um, it's a, it's like a thicker piece of rope and it's all limp, you know, and you swing it and it's a really good for feeling bat lag, but not for hitters that are uppercutters. It's really good for hitters that swing down, like physically swing down. So he was using the rope bat a lot. So, and at, at that time we were teaching this kind of deep barrel path. So the barrel has to jump right into the zone, right in front of the catcher's glove, regardless of whether the pitch was in middle or away. So we were working that a lot, you know, really get that barrel to accelerate backwards towards the catcher and do it, do it, do it. So inside, he was having a hard time. So I went on to Craig Hyatt's page and was looking at some of the looping videos. I was looking for specific ones. I was looking for hitters that show their numbers very well. And uh, I was looking for plus velocity inside, them hitting a homer plus velocity inside, like 95, 96 plus. So I was looking at Mookie Betts. I was looking at Miguel Cabrera, Mike Trout. I was looking at some of Mitch Hanniger. I was looking at some of these guys and seeing what was happening. Were they showing their numbers on the pitch in, on plus velocity in? And what I found was they were, so they weren't, it was, if the pitch is away, I'm going to show if the pitch is in. I'm not going to show my numbers because there's just not enough time to be able to do that. So I said, okay, well, what is it then? So I went from that pitcher's view to the chest view and was going to see what happened with the barrel. What was different with the barrel? Let me grab my back. So what, what I was finding was when the ball was in what they, what the hitters would do is that they would, as they would turn, you'd see that barrel stay up longer, up, up, up. And then they would release it later. We call it the right into the belly button catcher's glove. So if you imagine there's a catcher, a hologram catcher sitting where he normally sits, but forward. So his glove is in line with the hitter's belly button, right? So instead of knocking the real catcher's glove off, which we do do on middle, middle down and middle away. So we do do that, that deep barrel path, but only on pitches that are farther away from the hitter's eyes. But when the pitcher pitches are more in, so middle in and middle up in the zone, 
you were seeing these hitters keep their barrel up, 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 keeping it locked into the shoulder, and then you were seeing them go here. So that was that compactness that people talk about being short to the ball, right? Right. Those cues are good. I used to teach those were horrible cues. Swing down, get on top. You know, you hear Trot say it. You see Alex Rodriguez say it. And what they're saying is those pitches, middle in and middle up, that approach is going to work. But it's not going to work middle away and middle down. So then you get the other camp of hitters or hitting coaches that are talking about this deep barrel path and really get that barrel accelerating behind the hitter. But that doesn't work. And this is what I found with my hitter. That doesn't work middle in and middle up. You end up under the ball. You end up jammed and stuff like that. So we chunk barrel path into two two types of barrel path. So we have three different catcher's gloves. We have a real one. We have one that's in line with the back foot. And we have one that's in line with the belly button. So if it's middle in or middle up, what you see elite hitters doing is you'll see their barrel enter the zone between, say, middle in, middle up. It'll be between the back foot and the, and the belly button catcher's glove. So they're not perfect. Sometimes they're, they're a little later or earlier. Like they'll hit the back foot catcher's glove where it's, it's like inner third of the plate and they should have hit the belly button one. They still hit a homer. It, it, there's, there's margin for error in there, obviously. Right. But optimally – if it's, if it's a third in or a third up in the zone, they got to be hitting that belly button catcher's glove. The closer to the eyes the ball is, the more short and compact the swing needs to be. The farther away from the eyes the, the ball is, then you're looking at back foot to the real catcher's glove. So the barrel can enter the zone sooner and because you're making contact with the ball um, later. So it's, it's basically the barrel path, the distance the barrel, uh, the distance of barrel travels from what the catcher's glove, they should be hitting op- optimally to the contact point. It doesn't change. The distance the barrel travels doesn't change. It just gets shifted forward or backwards. Right. No, I, yeah, that, that, that makes sense. Now, I guess one of the, one of the questions would be like, how do you get kids to feel that? And my first response would be like, maybe you could do like overload training, right? Overload, uh-huh, overload training. Well, I mean, exactly. what, what's your thought on, on doing, on doing overload training under, underload? Oh, I love it. Yeah. Perry husband was kind of the the father of that brought that to baseball. And, uh, this was probably a couple of decades ago. He was talking about it and nobody was really listening. And, uh, so the overload training is really good, especially well for, for all hitters, whether they uppercut or they swing down, but really for the, the uppercutters, because the uppercutters are, are intersecting the line at one point, both of them are, but this one is kind of, they call it, I guess the launch angle swing where a lot of these coaches hate this long launch angle swing because it's, it's kind of got associated with hitting the ball up in the air, only in the air, which line drives are in the air. But it, when I used to teach hit the top back third part of the cage, this was probably about two years ago, taught all my hitters to do that. I found that a lot of my high school guys, they would come in and they would say, well, uh, I went over four with four flyouts, you know, yeah. not fun. That's yeah. not fun. And that's the best way to get on the radar of a coach that will put you on the bench. Cause it, if anything, most coaches, you can err on the side of ground balls in high school, especially, you know, uh, high school coaches love ground balls, especially hard ground balls. Uh, but they hate fly balls. So that's the best way to get yourself on the bench. So what we started doing was using the overload training is we'll do a high low T. So we'll take a Tanner T or backspin T and we'll put it as high up as it can go. So even if it's at like the armpits or even at the, the shoulders, We'll put it up as high as it can go and we'll put it down as low as it can go. And so if we're doing a five swing round, the, the odd swings, we as high as you can at the even swings, we're as low as you can. They're swinging a heavy bat. 
And so they'll do five swings with the heavy bat and they'll do five swings with their bat doing the same thing with the tee. So their goal is to take the ball, whatever height it is off the tee, is to keep it that height off the bat as they hit it. It needs to stay the, the same height. So we call it, we say it's hitting it back through the tube. So you hit it right back through the tube and that translates to pitching too when you're throwing to them. So the pitcher's throwing the ball, it's coming through a tube and the tube is all based on the height of the ball from the, from the ground. And we want our, our main goal always, even if they hit a 500 foot homer, they had bat before, we always want to get back to the tube. We just call those quality misses. So get back to the tube because the reality is that the best in the world, the best hitters in the world, 20% line drive rates, 40% ground ball, 40% fly ball, a little bit different, but that's a league average, right? 43% ground ball, I think 37% fly ball. So we just round it 40, 40. So 80% of the time they're missing the ball. 80% of the time, 20% of the time they're right on it. They're hitting the line drive. So with our hitters, we do the same thing. So we, we, our whole goal is that tube always go back to that tube. And if you miss above or below that, your misses are going to be harder and they're going to be more quality. So whether you hit a hard one hopper or you hit a double off the wall, that's our whole goal is to hit the ball hard, more often, more consistent. So the heavy bats really help because it levels out with the plane of the pitch or the tube. It helps the hitter to get stronger and to like level the barrel out and keep it level with the, the plane of the pitch, which is where your average batting average goes up, which metric people don't really care about anymore, but people still talk about it, it is kind of relevant. I mean, it is uh, relevant. I mean, how many hall of famers do you see are going to the hall of fame hitting two twenty? <laughs> right. I mean, exactly. you got it, you know, <laughs> they don't like it. I think because they're taking walks out of the equation. I think it is right. Batting average is, is hits divided by at bats or whatever. So they don't add walks in. That's why they don't like it. Cause walks are obviously a, a significant metric to score more runs in a game, but it's still, it's, I mean, it is relevant. Come on. Sure. So average goes up because we're matching the plane of the pitch. Now we're not intersecting it in one line, right? Strikeouts go down and um, you know, your, your high fly ball rates and your, your high ground ball rates go down too. So you want you want to do use the overload training to uh, level off the player's barrel path in line with the pitch, not not with the ground, but with the pitch plane, right? The tube. You want to you want to keep that level. So overload training is awesome. It's what like what what, what um weight would you recommend? Because I know there's a lot of studies out there. You should only go what is it like fifteen percent over your game bat, and then fifteen mm-hmm. percent under. I forget the exact, but it's somewhere right around that range. Do you what do you do for that the overload underload? So we go heavy. Perry's a big plus 10 guy. And I was like, man, plus 10 is a lot because 32, that's a that's a 42 ounce bat. We I tried to get anchor bats. If you're familiar with anchor bats out in South Carolina, I tried to get them to do a plus 10 overload. They ended up with a plus four to plus six. So like a 34 inches of plus six. So it's a 40 ounce still heavy. It's all inloaded. Inloaded is is kind of key. You can use you want to use all kinds, you know, you have, um, you have plus zeros like the whip stick or the new ax bat they have out now. It's like a 38, 38 or it's something 37, like that. 37, 37, 37, 37. Yeah. So it's only one length, I guess. Um, so you have that, you have handle loaded, handle loaded weight, weighted bats where you can get up to 90 ounces or hundred ounces. Right. But the big key is what we're trying to do with heavy bats is we're trying to get the hitter to control the barrel. So the heavier, to me, the heavier, the better, because I come from a fitness background, strength conditioning. So if you want to get a hitter stronger or if you want to get an athlete stronger in the weight room, say you're doing deadlifts and stuff, you have to be within the 90 to 95% of one rep max range. And you're doing two to three reps, two to three sets, right? And then you follow it up with the body weight box jump 
after that. So that's the underload side of things. So there's no weight. You're just using body weight. So with hitters, it's the same kind of thing. If you want to get stronger, you want to get like we call barrel surgeons. You want to become a barrel surgeon where you can control that barrel makes you better at controlling what we call verticals or what others call launch angles and be able to control your horizontals or your line to line, right? Being able to go to all fields. So that overload, the, the more, the, the better it's hard. Like I have my nine, uh, I don't have too many eight year olds anymore. Nine, 10, 11 year olds. They're swinging 32 plus fours, 32, 36 is, uh, 36 ounces. Yeah. And, and they're, they can do it. It's crazy. They can do it but they have to be trained. You can't just throw that bat in their hand and say, swing. You got to tell them that they got to fight this barrel. They can't let this barrel beat them. They can't let the barrel fall down and, and get under the ball. They have to fight it. And they got to have like where we use that external cue of the tube. They got to hit that ball right back through the tube, or we're making adjustments above and below the tube. So if we're not using the tube, if they hit a ground ball, we tell them to hit it in the air. The next one, they, it, usually they end up on the line, but if they do hit it in the air, then we tell them to hit it back on the ground again. And that's, and that's tough to do with, with those young kids because they just don't have the strength a lot of times to, or they don't, they don't, you know, they don't know what their body's doing or even know what a lot of, you know, what it can do yet. Right. But if you stick to the adjustment side of things, they understand external cues, right? External cues are awesome. If you can, if you can kill, you can kill three, four birds with one stone with an external cue, internal cues. I love, I love using internal cues, but they tend to only fix one thing, Right. So the external cues with the young kids, and I'm talking my son who's six, we were doing the same thing at five, six years old with him, was that if, if we're hitting live, hits one on the ground, I tell him hit the next one in the air. Most of the times he's hitting, he's hitting a line drive, but if he hits it in the air, then I tell him to try and hit it back on the ground again. So if I can get him to feel up and down swings, then I can get him in the middle. It's, it's in the, what was the book, um, made to make it stick by Peter C. Brown. So it was all kind of the science of successful learning. And mm-hmm. that was one of them was variance. So we use variance a lot. So there was a study that they did real quick study was beanbag toss. So they had a bunch of grade school kids split the class into two group A, group B. They had group A practice throwing beanbags in a bucket that was at three feet, three feet away from them. And then they had the group B practice throwing beanbags in two buckets. One was two and one was four feet away. So no three foot bucket. So two and four. So they both groups practiced for about 15 minutes. And at the end, they had them all practice or they had them all test throwing beanbags in a three foot bucket that was three foot away. So the author asked, who do you think, who do you think won the one that was practicing on the three foot bucket or the group that was practicing on two and four? And, you know, you think it's a a trick question. So you pick two and four, but you don't know why, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But think about it, right? You're practicing on three and you think that practicing on three, you do better if you had to test on three after 15 minutes, but see what the other group is getting that the, that the group A is not. They're practicing on two standards of measure. They're getting a two foot bucket and a four foot bucket. So they're basically practicing throwing it too far on the three foot bucket and throwing it, throwing it right in front of the three foot bucket, right? That's the two and the four. So when they get to the three foot bucket, all they got to do is throw it in the middle of those two spots Mm -hmm. that they've been practicing on the other two, right? So this idea of variance, especially with the young kids, I don't go, I, I don't work. I have a, a hitting protege now or a apprentice that I send my younger hitters to. Uh, he's, a, he's still in high school. He's a junior in high school this year. Uh, I send them to him. But even with my seven, when I was working with six, seven, eight-year-olds, we're doing a lot of variant stuff like that. It's more, I call it swing experimentation. Yeah, you like so, block first random practice. Exactly, exactly. Yep, yeah, because block block practice is good in some settings, but 
especially when they're younger, you, you, they got to feel random. They got to feel all kinds of different ways of doing things like this last year for my son's team, I got roped into head coaching. And so, you know, I'm a specialist, right? I love hitting. I stay in my lane. I don't like to go out to pitching. I, I delegate that out to a buddy of mine that teaches pitching here locally. And so I'm not a big generalist. So I haven't worked that part of, part of my brain muscle yet. So this year I had to kind of come up with some stuff to work on, say, throwing. And a couple of the drills we did was uh, for throwing accuracy, I, I got frog tape. It's green, so you can't miss it. I taped up a number one, uh, number one, a number two, and a number three on the fence, but I kind of staggered them. So I had like, I think one and three were a little lower than two. And so I had three, three of my hitter or my, my fielders that were in front of me and I was rolling, rolling them ground balls. And I would roll at first. It was easy. So I'd roll them a ground ball before they fielded it or before I rolled it to them. I would say, I want you to hit one. So I'd roll it to them. They'd field it. And then they'd throw and try and hit one that was on the fence. Right. Then I would go through the line, do that. And then I'd make it harder where I would say, I'd roll it. I'd say one. And then as they fielded it, I would say three. And so they would have to come up and change course and throw and throw, hit the number three that was taped up on the fence. So we did that. I mean, we did different combinations of that and we were, we changed them down the line. So they, they, they changed their position of where, where they were in relation from when they started and they ended. And I tell you what, man, they got a lot more accurate in their throwing. Um, and another way to do that too is, so if you haven't thrown across to the first baseman, instead of having them where he normally is on the bag, have, have where the normal one is, have one that's down the line towards home plate about 10 feet. And then have another one that's uh, uh, down the line into right field about 10 feet. So you, they have different targets uh, laterally that, they, that they're working on throwing to. And then you can do it depth-wise, same thing. So have the regular first baseman uh, bag, then have one that's 10 feet in front, like closer to the infielder, to the shortstop or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then one, have one 10 feet beyond where the first baseman is. So basically an overthrow, right? right. And have them practice throwing to each distance. So now they have, you take this variance concept and now they have different, uh, variant, uh, different standards of measure now where they're throwing the ball. So it makes them better at hitting the middle, just like the beanbag toss. It's crazy, dude. Crazy. I like that. I like that. I'm like you, I like to just stay in my lane just in hitting, but I do, you know, nature of the beast, you do have to do a little bit of the throwing too. I mean, if you are going to coach and I coach high school baseball, so we have to do a little bit of that yep. anyway, but oh, that's, yeah, a, of course. that's a good point. Um, I want to get into uh, talk about the spinal engine a little bit more. Now, everyone believes that the, that power is in your legs. Mm-hmm. What would you say to that? Okay. So I got a great example of that. We did a couple experiments, me and the backspin T guys have become pretty good friends with. Uh, when I did my backspin T experiment with them early on, we, we were, we just kind of met. So I, we weren't friends per se just yet. Uh, so they did an experiment where, uh, I tried doing one. It didn't really work out as well. I tried to kind of stay forward with my pelvis, have a T here and just turn my shoulders and swing without moving my pelvis, you know, turning it towards the plate, but it didn't work out that well. So they did one where they had four guys. They had a combination. They had a guy who was playing a ball guy was playing D one college ball. And I think Taylor Taylor's a, a long distance golfer. He golfed and ran track in college, played baseball in high school. His brother, older brother was, uh, I think he pitched seven to nine years in professional ball, I think. Um, but they all, their ball exit speeds, when they took their control ball exit speeds, they were around 90 to 95, 96 miles an hour off the tee. So then what they did was they, it looked like a circus. So they would go from 
they would stand on a chair, they would drop down and swing before their feet hit the ground. So trying to basically eliminate the lower half. They did one where they jumped up, swung, and, and tried to hit the ball. Um, and I think they did a couple other ones. But it was interesting because they took ball exit speeds on all those. So if their control swings were 90 to 96, when they were doing all the other goofy stuff, where they're trying to keep their feet off the ground and swinging at the same time, their, those swings were between 60 and 70 miles an hour ball exit speed. So then it got me thinking because somebody said, well, you know, do that experiment correctly. You need to sit in a harness. You need to be in a harness floating above the ground, taking swings. And I'm like, well, who has a harness? You know, I, I don't, we're, we're, this is farmland, but we're not close to, you know, the cows. They put the cows in the harness, right, when they were milking them or whatever. So I was like, well, what athlete in what sport throws or hits or whatever without their legs? And so I was thinking about, I was like, water polo. They throw without their legs. They have the water. There's a little friction created by the water, but if you or I go in the water, if we have, if we aren't water polo trained, try throwing a, a ball yeah, <laughs> in the water yeah. as hard as you can, right? So I looked it up, and I and I was I was curious to see what the fastest water polo throw was in the world. What the fast? What do you think it is? Fastest water polo throw Olympics that that level, like professionals of water polo. Fifty five, because that's I mean that ball is pretty big. I mean pretty big. It's probably, I would say fifty fifty five. 65 Croatian, Croatian male Olympic, uh, water polo guy. Okay. 65 miles an hour. So what would happen though? And we don't know this yet. We'd have to run a test on it, but what would happen if you put a baseball in that guy's hands? How do you think, how hard do you think he can throw floating in water? If he can throw that big ball, 65 miles an hour floating in water, what do you think he could throw a baseball? That's about what a quarter of the size of that ball. Yeah. I mean, you would think, geez, 75, 85. I was going to say 85. Yeah. 75, 85. So then Say if we go, say if we go conservative and say 75, he just adds 10 miles an hour, right? So the fastest pitcher on the ground throwing in today's games around, would you say about a hundred miles an hour? Of course, there's like 106 and different stuff like that. But if we round it to a hundred, because there's only one or two, you can count on one hand how many or, or maybe a half a dozen that are throwing over a hundred miles an hour. But you know, there's a lot of guys between kind of 96 and one, 100, you know, so say 100. So you have the guy in sitting in water, throwing a baseball we figure 75 miles an hour and the pitcher in the big leagues best the fastest thrower on land coming down a mound the whole thing 100 miles an hour so you're so you're saying that there's a 25 mile an hour difference between throwing on land which is using your legs using you know all that lower half that everybody says the power is coming from ground reaction forces you have only a 25 mile an hour difference so that's telling me that in the water there's more going on there than just ground reaction forces because that's virtually non-existent in the water right so that's where I get to my idea that the legs are 20 to 30% of it. And part of that 20 to 30, probably a majority of that 20 to 30% is more pelvis than legs. So the pelvis is part of that spine engine, right? That's pelvis, uh, spine, and shoulders. So when what I tell my hitters is I tell them it's not that your legs don't create power or, or give you any power because they do because they have to interact with gravity, but it's that they're minimal, 20 to 30%. Whereas your spine engine is 70 to 80% of the power. So I say your spine engine gets you to the wall, your legs get you over the wall. Right. And then, so, that's, so I just want to clarify, you said this, that includes your pelvis, the spine engine. Yeah, that includes your pelvis. Yes, right. and shoulders. Yeah, yeah. Those, those three pieces. Yeah, it's the interaction between your pelvis. Because Dr. Serge Grakovetsky had a client who, or a patient, who he had hooked up to all these things to measure his, his spinal activity or the, the ligamentous activity and his muscle activity. 
And he was a, he was born a quadriplegic, didn't have arms. I think he had nubs for arms, but didn't have legs at all. So he basically uh, moved on his ischium or the bottom of his pelvis. And if you, and if you look at this video, you can go on uh, YouTube and put Dr. Serge Grakovetsky spinal engine or something like that. And I think it's at around the three and a half minute mark. He, he talks about this guy and you see video of him walking. And he, and he says, Dr. Serge Grakovetsky says, if you covered up his, where his legs would be, and you watched him walk, you would swear the guy's got legs. You would swear it, but he doesn't. So then that was the one, that was one of the eye-openers for me when I was going back and kind of reading all this stuff before I kind of reverse-engineered the swing. Um, because like Dr. Serge Grakovetsky says, he says the, the legs and arms aren't necessary for locomotion, for walking, whatever. They are a, an enhancement. So that's a, di- that's a distinction. That's a, that's a heavy distinction. So yeah, you, your legs and arms do help. I mean, you're going to walk faster than the gentleman, the patient, right? The, the client, you're going to walk a lot faster because you have longer legs and your, your gait is a lot longer. You know, you're going to cover ground faster, but all in all, the foundation of locomotion and movement is all spine engine. It's, it's all of it. That's where everything originates. So what I say is when people go, well, the ground, the swing starts from the ground up. Uh, I would say it starts from the middle out is what I would say. And if you watch again, Miggy Cabrera, Mike Trout, you watch the Ted Williams, you watch all those guys, you see a lot of the swing happens. A lot of it happens from the pelvis, the pelvis up. Everybody's so geared on the pelvis and they're so geared on the legs. They, their eyes are way down here. And then they, they forget that, Hey, there's a top half to this too. Um, it's like wringing out a towel as we talk about it with my hitters, except you have three hands. Your top hand is your head, middle hand, is your shoulders. And the bottom hand is your, is your pelvis, right? So when you wring out a towel, it's, it's opposing forces. So the middle, the middle hand is the shoulders. So the shoulders showing numbers, down angle, um, you know, that kind of stuff, hiding hands. The head has to actually anchor uh, in, a, in a, a tracking position, right? It has to anchor in a tracking position. While the shoulders start to pull in, the head has to keep its spot. It can't get pulled off or doesn't really need to push out, but it needs to wind up at the top. So at the top of the T-spine or the bottom of the neck, there needs to be some pressure up there, and that's winding. Now you're you're wringing that towel out at the top. Now the bottom kind of happens when the pelvis starts to open. Shoulders stay closed, pelvis starts to open, and now we create pressure on the bottom. So now we wring the towel out on the bottom. But the head and the pelvis both move the same direction, and then the the shoulders in the middle is the one that counter rotates it. So, so how like should we how up. should we differentiate our training based off of the spine the spinal engine being so much more important than really the lower hat than like just the legs? Yeah. So what I do is I split the swing up into kind of three steps. So there's like in the detect and correct course, right? So the what's the biggest itch with the hitter? So if you're working with a hitter or a parent, you know, the parent kind of gives you good information because they're a third party in the, they get to see, you know, they're observing what they're, what's happening. And the parent will say, well, you know, Johnny is popping the ball up too much. Johnny is uh, swinging and missing a lot and he's striking out a lot. So then what we would do is we would take those, those don't really have a lot to do with power. It's more of alignment. So pitch plane domination. So the pitch plane domination side is kind of where we go in first. So we don't start talking about the spine engine at that point because it's, we want to correct that. We want to scratch that biggest itch first. So the biggest itch is we got to get Johnny back on the plane again. We got to get him feeling the downswing. We got to get him uh, hitting it right back through the tube and having you know overload training and getting him back on 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 the tube. Once we start getting more constant contact and harder contact, then maybe Dad or or Johnny will say, "Hey, why well, I'm just not feeling much power," and or I'm feeling it, but it's inconsistent. 
then we start to go into the catapult loading system stuff. So then we start talking about finger pressure. Well, actually, we do that first because that's kind of a bleeds into all different ones. Um, but we'll go into the power side of stuff then. So showing numbers, down shoulder angle, you know, start to get the get that build up that pressure in the neck or the the lower back or whatever. Um, and then the last ones so you got catapult loading system is the power side. Pitch plane domination is kind of the the verticals and horizontals. You know, the launch angles and the line to lines. And then the reaction time mastery stuff is a little bit more is a little bit more advanced. So that's like the vision tracking timing. Um, I include forward momentum in that one, but usually forward momentum, I, I kind of do a lot of that stuff with pitch plane domination, like the footwork and stuff. Um, and so those are the three buckets that I usually use with my hitter, but it all depends on what the biggest itch is with that hitter. Is it lack of power? Is it too many strikeouts? And so from there, I'll kind of go and start working on whatever that biggest itch is. Gotcha. Another, another big, big, to- big topic that's just getting bigger and bigger is just fascia in general. And um, I heard you talk a little bit about that. Why, sh- why should we care so much about fascia? And like, I know it's important, but like, how do we make it so it's more like, what should we do with it? I mean, yeah, right. Good question. <laughs> so most, most people, most coaches out there, they understand bones and muscles, right? That's kind of the foundational knowledge. And when it comes to fascia, like you said, it's not it's not there yet. So it's educating them what it is. It's, you know, it's a spider webby cotton candy like material that your bones and muscles float in gives, gives muscles their shape. So if we were to take out all the, the fascia out of your body, all the fascia, leave all the organs, the muscles, the bones and everything, if we take all the fascia out, all that stuff, that extra stuff falls to a heap on the ground. So they're like little bags that hold everything together, your organs, it's all intermixed in your organs, bone, they're actually arguing is fascia that's wound really, really, really tight, because bones are actually movable, they're uh, bendable, right, the older we get, the less bendable they are, but that's another story, but they are bendable, so they're actually arguing that that tendinous material and bones are actually fascial material, they're just kind of wound tighter uh, in where they're at, so the fascia is important because it's interconnected. Everything is interconnected. So I can, I can injure something on my forehead. I can injure my forehead and it's actually going to affect my, the ball of my foot because there's a sheet, according to Tom Myers, depth anatomy trains, there's a sheet of fascia that goes from my top of my eyebrows over my head, down my back, down my butt, hamstrings, calves, and goes over my heel and attaches to the front of the ball of my foot. Now, if I have a major injury up here, it's not going to, you're not going to feel the effects in year, in a couple of years, but you, you probably will feel it in, in maybe 10 years or 15 years where it'll maybe come up as you'll have this like plantar fasciitis that is just unbearably a nightmare to walk. Right. And, and you're like, I don't know how I got this. And it could be other things, but uh, just by messing up that area, anywhere in that, in that sheet of fascia, and there's eight of them or nine of them, there's different eight, eight or nine different trains that are interwoven of fascia throughout your body. So there's an article and I can't think of all the, um, all the ones there's four, there's four things you can do to take care of your fascia. So one of them is like lengthening. So having hitters, instead of just strength conditioning stuff in the weight room, have them do yoga, have them do Pilates, have them do, um, a follow along stretching thing. There's, there's gymnasticbodies.com, There's gmbfitness.com that are really good, have programs on stretching, like straddle stretch, split stretch. They have, um, uh, a lot of the hands, handstand courses are really good for shoulder mobility and whatnot. So lengthening is one of them. Another one is elasticity or not elasticity is, um, is like the bounce back is the quick, quick, quick. So the, the sprinting, the jumping rope, the, uh, bouncy, like, uh, 
the, uh, what do you call it, box jumps, you know, things like that that are really explosive type movements. Hitting is like that. Hitting is, is kind of part of that, but it's one-sided. It's one-side dominant. So getting hitters to go lefty if they're righty, just in practice swings, you don't have to make them switch hit, but just to have them uh, explosive swings on their left side if they're right-handed would help. But balancing out all that fascia and making sure that it's not you're not doing the one-sided dominant thing. Um, hydration is another one, and it's not just drinking a lot of water. It's actually getting body work, so deep tissue massage, to uh, take areas of restriction that are kind of stuck, that you get them unstuck, and then it allows the fluids to go in there and to um, like hitters or athletes that have leathery skin that hardly move, like their skin should, their skin should slide really easily across their muscles and bones. And if it doesn't, then they got to get that worked out and the adhesions pulled out so that they can get the fluid in there. Um, so there's some things you can do to take care of your fascia moving, sitting is probably the worst thing you can do and doing the same repetitive movement over and over and over, like throwing a ball or hitting while not doing the opposite side, right. Is, is not really good for fascia. Um, swinging it, Swinging at balls over their head or underneath that they're not used to swinging at, not in the strike zone, is good for them. Um, again, not you're not trying to create bad habits. It's just that you're. It's more of you're trying to get their body to be more healthy, uh, fascial wise. You know? Gotcha. So there's there's still it's still early in the um, in the research of this. There's a lot that's come out since I first started this, but there's a lot of cool stuff coming out now where they're kind of finding out some new things. You know, as they as they move along in the research and kind of build on what they've already found. Gotcha. Joey, this has been a lot of fun, man. I appreciate it. Um, great stuff. And if someone wants to contact you, like what's the best way they should go about that? So I would say hittingperformancelab.com is a good way. We are like a couple blog posts away from 300 free ones on there. Wow. So since I started in 2000, that site, I started 2014, I think. So we have about five years ago. So almost 300 blog posts. There's a lot of information, but I have a search bar at the upper right that you can use that will help, you know, whatever their query is, it can go in there or the uh, categories. You can go in there. I think I have three main ones, which is build more power, which is basically catapult loading system stuff. I have hit more line drives, which is pitch plane domination stuff. And then the other one is get on time more often or something like that. And that's the reaction time mastery stuff. So that's how to kind of digest some of that information because they could get there and they were like i don't even know where to start that's where i would probably start is either search bar or navigation bar um can find me on the socials facebook just type in hitting performance lab and i'm there the and the twitters usually those two i'm kind of a little bit more active on so twitter i think it's at hit perform lab you know um i'm on linkedin as joey myers i'm on instagram too but i just post just quote pictures and stuff like that i really haven't figured out instagram as as well um, and then my YouTube channel has a lot of, I think I've almost have 7,000 followers or something or, um, subscribers or something on there too. So on YouTube, just type in hitting performance lab and all those videos will come up. So that's probably a good place to start. Gotcha. Awesome, man. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks Patrick.